First Timothy chapter 6. We're going to talk about money. So we're back in our Thrive series, and we've been walking through Christian verbs, and the series of them that we've been considering so far began with remember, meditate, lead, speak, sing, and today, share. And the idea behind this whole Christian verbs approach is that God isn't sort of barking orders down from heaven, barking orders from the balcony. He, he incentivizes our obedience. He, he blesses, He rewards our obedience. He doesn't say, obey me because I said so. He, he meets us with grace and power and life and blessing as we step forward in these things. So, so these verbs, I hope we're not looking at them one after another as a, a kind of list of chores that we have to do in order to please our God or to be accepted by Him. No, we should think of these verbs one after another and all the other ones that we won't have, a, have time to get to. We should think of these verbs, these commands from God as invitations into a deepened joy in our relationship with God. I think that's why John writes and says his commandments are not burdensome. Not if we look at them the right way. They're burdensome if we think they're this onerous command of God, and if we don't do them exactly right, then he's going to be displeased, and we'll just see his furrowed brow looking down from heaven. If that's how we look at his commands, then yes, they are burdensome. But if, if it's an invitation from God to say, I'll meet you in the singing of the church. I'll meet you when you meditate on my word. I'm going to bring fresh life into this relationship that we have together. It puts a whole new spin on Christian action and activity and the doing of the Christian life. So that's what Thrive is all about. And we have here another invitation into a deepened joy in our relationship with God with this verb share in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you're there, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. Short passage, just a few verses. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. <clears throat> As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that, and here's the thrive piece, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Well, that's our desire. Take hold of that which is truly life. And this text invites us to take hold of true life through generosity, through sharing, opening our hand. Earlier in this very same chapter, back in verse 10, Paul said this in his famous words. We quote them all the time. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving... As the craving for more stuff, the craving for wealth, the love of money. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I wonder if he's maybe thinking of someone like Demas. Demas, where he's, Demas used to walk around with Paul. He was a fugitive on the run. He was a gospel comrade in the mission of Christ. And at some point, Paul would sometimes write the churches and say, Demas is with me, and this guy is with me. And he would say, Demas greets you, and you can find that. And then in one of the letters in particular, Paul says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith. It's not a hypothetical situation. Even here in our own time, Christian author Bob Bevington, a helpful and candid writer, he writes these words. 
I got my first job when I was 16. I scooped ice cream and mopped floors. The owner paid me a dollar an hour, which was less than minimum wage. I didn't care because I was still somewhat humble back then. I remained pretty much broke all through college. My net worth was 500 bucks the day Rita and I got married. But I also had my doctor of optometry degree from Ohio State, go Buckeyes, and a promising job working at a well-established practice. Not long after I started making an income, I made two interesting discoveries. Money had a tremendous power to inflate my ego, and I liked that a lot. And he goes on to talk about some investments that he made on the side that returned tremendous dividends, and he ended up finding himself making about $2 million per year. And he was just raking it in more and more money. But the more he made, the more control that it exerted over his heart, over his life, over his relationship. And he describes it as a giant that began to take over everything in life. He goes on to say, it had taken on a life of its own. I had no clue how to do battle with it. I tried harder, exerting more willpower, and the giant giggled. I took sensitivity training and applied psychological insights. This time I heard belly laughs. I got the message. My self-improvement project was a joke. Meanwhile, my giant was taking its toll on our marriage. I'm so glad that God's Word doesn't just speak up in the stratosphere of ideas, but it comes down into the world. It comes and speaks to us in, in the real workings of life. It speaks to our hearts. It addresses our relationships. It informs the way that we talk to one another, the way that we speak to one another. These are some of the things that we've looked at over the past few weeks. And here God comes and talks to us about money, but not not just dollars and cents and practical things like investment opportunities, but he talks to us about the relationship between our riches and our hearts and the dangers that are there on the one hand, and the prospects for eternal dividends and investments to happen on the other hand. I think the reason that Paul begins with a word of warning right here in this text, it's not only a word of warning, but it begins there. I think the reason it begins there is that so often financial prosperity runs runs in, in company with trouble. It leads to bad things. It grows bad things. Unchecked, it grows bad things in our hearts. A celebrated 20th century writer, author, John Steinbeck, wrote these words. He said, a strange species we are. We can stand anything God and nature can throw at us except plenty. The problem is not with our money. The problem is with our hearts. The money gets in our hands and in our hearts take that in a wrong direction. There's no intrinsic evil about dollars and cents and plastic. It's where our hearts go with that. And so God wisely addresses the hearts of human beings prone to wander into the love of money. And he addresses us in this way, beginning with warnings to the rich. Right there in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age... And that would be all of us, by the way. We live in the richest culture on the planet. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's the first warning, the first exhortation. In other words, this is how it is in your notes. Don't be spoiled by your money. Charge them not to be spoiled by your money, not to be haughty. Some versions will translate this, don't be high-minded, don't be arrogant, don't be proud, charge them not to be full of themselves. These are different ways that that same word is translated over into English. And I think if we have any doubt 
that riches and pride often run together, any reality TV show will do the trick. <laughs> Where these, these camera crews will go into some mansion, entering at their own risk, and they'll just watch these people relate to each other. People inside these absolute palatial mansions, and the people inside are filled with incredible discontentment, unhappy, demanding human beings, screaming, yelling, cursing at each other. And the connection between riches and pride isn't just one that we see played out in culture, we see it played out in Scripture. The Bible talks about this all the time. Ezekiel, God is talking to His people in the Old Testament through the prophet Ezekiel, and he says these words, by your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth, and your heart has become proud in your wealth. There they are together, making some wise financial decisions, but they don't just remain wise financial decisions. It leads to wealth, and the wealth leads to pride. They often run together. Three of the most prominent areas for boasting, Jeremiah warns about this. He says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his strength. And third, let not the rich man boast in his riches. That's what Paul is saying here in the New Testament. Charge the rich in this present age not to boast in their riches, not to be haughty or high-minded with their wealth. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Again, we know in comparison with the rest of the world that we're incredibly rich, and yet we still tend to think, I think personally around the room, if you're like me, we still tend to think comparatively within our own culture. So it's probably other people in this room who really need to watch out for this, and not me personally. There are lots of people who make a ton more money in their lives. So God is exhorting them in a real way to watch out and be careful about not letting their wealth take control or foster an attitude of superiority in their own lives. You just think about that. We don't tend to be circumspect in the area of our wealth. So, so let's say you walk into a room and there are tables representing all kinds of human struggles and sins. And you're guaranteed that the table that you go to and line up at, you'll get help in that department. And so you've got the table for the, the jealous, you've got bitterness table, you've got a table for those who are battling with lust, battling with fear, you've got an anger table over here, probably the people in line are yelling at each other, pushing each other around, right? And then you've got the haughty table. I'm just guessing, but I bet you there's no line. I mean, how many of us would walk into the room and say, I don't need those. Actually, I need to stand at the haughty table because I feel like my riches are taking so much control. I'm such a demanding human being. I'm so hard to be around. No, we don't think introspectively in this category of our lives. And yet, it is the dominant sin of our culture. Why are we not more careful, more vigilant, more introspective about this? A while back, I had a meeting with a young man who was really angry. He was really angry at American culture. He was really angry at the affluence in American evangelicalism as well. And he was just blasting everything in all directions. He had even written down on, into a notebook all the things that bothered him about, about the affluent West and living in the affluent West. And he read them to me just turning pages, ironically, in his moleskin journal. Um, <laughs> apparently not sensing the irony in that moment that he's working from a journal that is vastly overpriced. It's, it's a notebook that doesn't tell you it's a notebook. Um, 
But there it is. And it's not that I disagreed with a lot of his observations and assessments. The point is, almost nobody denies the reality of blinding greed, but none of us thinks he's actually infected with the stuff. And, and the proof that I know that I'm not infected is how clearly I see it in the rest of you. Right? Isn't that... Maybe that's the reason why Jesus doesn't simply teach about the problem of riches, but he teaches about the deceitfulness of riches. That it, it hooks us in without us even knowing that we're obeying all of its commands, that we're serving at its beck and call. And it begins to shape our hearts so we become something progressively, day by day, not all in one day, but progressively different, progressively more entitled progressively a sense of superiority and condescension toward those around us who aren't in our same income bracket, that kind of thing. There was a study that was conducted in 2013 by a professor of the University of California, and the study was entitled this, Does Money Make You Mean? Findings. In every experiment, higher incomes were correlated with mean behavior. <laughs> what we've been finding is that a person's level of wealth increases, as a person's level of wealth increases, their feelings of compassion and empathy go down, and their feelings of entitlement, of deservingness, and their ideology of self-interest increase. Another survey that was conducted back in 2006, and it talked about the, the percentage of charitable donations given by people, the percentage of their income bracket, and so it was a very clear and easy-to-follow chart. The chart horizontally moved in the direction of how much you were making, from $5,000 to $150,000 per year. Going up, it was the percentage of what you would give to charitable organizations. And what did the line do? The line went down from people who make $5,000 a year to those who made $150,000 a year. The average person making $150,000 in the survey was giving 1.6% of his or her income to charity. You ever stop to think, or maybe even to, to ask someone who knows you well, have I changed? Have I gotten meaner? Have I gotten less content? Am I more difficult to be around than I was years ago? I wonder if that has anything to do with all the things that I've obtained. We live in America. Let's just Let's just acknowledge that. We can be grateful for that, but, but let's acknowledge the challenge that sets up for our hearts. We live in America. We are sitting in the 35242 zip code. I could travel one mile as the crow flies and get a fabulous lip enhancement. But that's the culture that, that's the culture that we live in. Let's just acknowledge that. 1 Timothy 6 couldn't be written to a more relevant audience than to the people sitting in this room. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, high-minded, vain, conceited, arrogant. Don't be spoiled by your money. Then he goes on to say, as for the rich, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. In other words, this is in your notes, don't tie your hope to your holdings. I think two evidences that we are starting to assume that our money will always be there for us in a jam, and we are hitching up our hopes to our holdings, would be just very basic here. We don't take our cares to God in prayer. We're prayerless. Prayerlessness, friends, always, I'll say that again, 
always indicates that my hope is misplaced. It's an invariable litmus test. It shows my hopes are somewhere else. I'm, I don't need to cast my cares before the Lord. Have you seen my bank account? Have you seen how set up I am for the future? Somebody else can cast cares. My goodness, their lives are falling apart. I'm fine. Number two, another evidence that we're starting to assume our money's always going to be there for us is we speak about future plans with an air of certainty. James talks about this. James in, in chapter 4, verse 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And right after he issues that charge and that exhortation, James issues a rebuke to the godless rich around him who spend their incomes, their fortunes on themselves, who ignore the plight of the poor and seek to derive their security from their wealth. He just, just blasts right there in chapter 5. Riches can hijack our dependence on God. They can do that. We need to be wary of that. That's why we have prayers like Agur's prayer in Proverbs chapter 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? What are you so concerned about? Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or, on the other hand, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Again, I'm just guessing, but in our culture, I think a lot more of us are praying, Lord, don't let me be poor, than Lord, please don't let me be rich. Lord, I don't think I could handle another raise right now. I'm already hard enough to be around. So that it sounds like a joke because we really don't think that we need to pray a prayer like that. Lord, I need to watch out because they're talking to me about a significant bonus, and I don't know if I can handle it. Would you guard my heart? We pray that way. Scripture would urge us to pray with that kind of carefulness. If we're wise, if we hear this text from God to us, we're going to look for ways to guard our hearts against the control of money. And that leads us to the road to true riches, where Paul goes next in verse 18 and 19. You know, I think so much of the conversation, even in Christian circles, about finances in our culture is exclusively related to two categories, spending and saving. You just go even to the, the section, the Christian living section of the of the bookstore, and you see lots of books about spending and savings, of being financially responsible and learning the value of deferred gratification, the importance of that, avoiding impulse buys, avoiding debt, right? Those aren't unhelpful things, and we need to hear them in our, our culture. But in a way, I think Paul opens another category. In addition to spending and serving, he adds what we might call serving. So spending, saving, serving. You can see that, in a sense, right there in verse 18. So what are they going to do if they're not to set their hopes and riches and be haughty? Here's what they're to do, verse 18. Do good. Be rich this way. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. And what does that do? That stores up in this way. That's what the word thus means. Thus, in this way, you're storing up treasure 
for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that, what's the end of this generosity? That they might take hold of that which is truly life. God's main agenda isn't to, to get spenders to become savers. He has a bigger agenda than that. Matter of fact, perhaps, arguably, one of Jesus' strongest rebukes about riches in the Gospels is to a saver, not a spender. Luke chapter 12. Not a guy who's feverishly spending all of his money. He's feverishly saving. He's not bowing before a golden calf of luxury. He's bowing, if anything, he's bowing before his golden nest egg. That's why he says, we, we catch him in his inner dialogue. Soul. This is what he says to himself. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. This guy's debt free. He should write a book for the Christian living section. No, no, there's more. Jesus interrupts his self-congratulations about all that he's stored away for the future, and he says, fool. That's Jesus' word of interruption. Fool, this night, your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Apparently, there's more than one way to love money, more than God. Through spending or through saving. By spending it like crazy or by piling it up in barns for the future. Either one of those can tell us something about our heart and our worship of mammon, our worship of money. God doesn't want us to, to convert us from being spenders to being savers. He wants those who spend and save with, to do so with a view to kingdom service. That's how all these three come together. For believers, generosity is the new rich. Generosity is the new rich. Here's the, here's the beautiful thing about this text. It's not a killjoy text. It, it's not looking to unrich the rich. It's looking to unhaughty the rich and open the hand of the rich in generosity. That's, that's the purpose of the text. It's not a killjoy text. This passage isn't rebuking your trip to the beach last weekend by any means. You see that in verse 17. We might have missed it the first time around. Charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who what? Who calls you to die to self? It's true from other texts. Not here, though. Set their hopes not on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. <laughs> if I bump into you at some fine restaurant here in town, we don't have to race each other to get out our gift cards. You know, as, as if that's the only possible explanation for why a Christian can be in here. He gives us good things for us to enjoy. He is pro-enjoyment. <laughs> he is not a killjoy. That is not our God. The, the things that we're looking at here in the text of Scripture, this, God is after our hearts. This isn't a rule book, you know, that you take sort of into your vacation plans to make sure it qualifies sufficiently frugal. That's, that's not the tone of this text. God blesses us, and he gives us rich enjoyment by his provision. And one of the expressions of our gratefulness is we share it with others. That's the purpose of the text. A few years back, some of us traveled to Dubai to help put together a conference for a number of missionaries who, a cluster of missionaries who, who work in that part of the world, a very difficult and challenging part of the world. Call them together 
into this place. It's just an absolutely beautiful hotel. And the pool was outside, and there were chocolate fountains in the foyer. And it was just to the nine, just an absolutely beautiful place. And none of us batted an eye, including my dear friend, our dear friend, and IMB president, and author of the famous chapter six of the book Radical, David Platt. (laughs) Didn't bat an eye. But because we're looking around, and I think we watched those kids splashing around in the pool, and we watched their parents sitting around laughing, praying for one another, crying, sharing stories. We watched all that going down, and we watched those kids come inside and hit that chocolate fountain five times in one afternoon, and we just looked around, and I think we all felt money well spent. God has provided us richly with everything to enjoy. Praise God they get to just relax this weekend. They need this. They worked hard. Let's bless them. That's the generosity of God. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. In other words, the, the pivot point of our text between the warning and the positive summons to generosity is God has blessed us with everything that we have and our response to knowing that it all comes from Him is to enjoy His blessing, to give thanks for His blessing, and verse 18, to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. What we do with our riches makes a statement about our definition of true riches. Read that again. What we do with our riches makes a statement about our definition of true riches. Christ follower, it should be hard for unbelievers to understand why we give so generously to the cause of the kingdom. And it should be hard because of verse 19. You're storing up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is truly life. Just think about how vacant that verse sounds if you don't believe in the afterlife. If you don't believe in God, if you don't treasure Jesus Christ and somebody invites you to give generously so you can store up eternal rewards, no thanks. This only makes sense in light of the fact that we believe Jesus and what he says and what he says about eternity and joy and fullness and blessing and it being more blessed to give than to receive. Does our giving mystify unbelievers? It should If they happen to know what we gave, would they look at us and say, what on earth are you getting back from that investment? Why would you give that much to some vacuous, nebulous, eternal investment program? Why would you do that? It should mystify them. Christian author Randy Alcorn, sort of the apostle of all things giving and generosity, and he wrote a wonderful book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. Well, he gives this helpful illustration about eternal treasure versus earthly treasure. Imagine you're alive at the end of the Civil War. You're living in the South, but you are a Northerner. You plan to move home as soon as the war is over, while in the South, you've accumulated lots of Confederate currency. Now, suppose you know for a fact that the North is going to win the war and the end is imminent. What will you do with your Confederate money? If you're smart, there's only one answer you should immediately cash in your Confederate currency for U.S. currency, the only money that will have value once the war is over. Keep only enough Confederate currency to meet your short-term needs. That is so 
helpful. Randy Alcorn calls that the ultimate insider trading tip. I want to just give you a, a practical snippet here. We're just going to run through this really quickly. It's in your notes. It comes from a great resource I've been reading through the past couple of weeks. Biblically grounded, practically helpful. The book is called God and Money. What two people learned, I can't remember the subtitle, but what two people learned from, about giving from, uh, from God while at Harvard Business School. And so they walk through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they summarize these seven principles from all over Scripture, these seven core principles for biblical wealth and giving. And you can think about these in a small group. You can pray about these on your own and think application personally. I'm just going to run through them quickly. Everything, number one, everything we own actually belongs to God. All these, you could represent many texts in the Scripture to, to back these up. Everything we own actually belongs to God. Two, our wealth should be used for God's purposes. Three, wealth is like dynamite with great potential for both good and harm. Four, am I going too fast? Good? Okay. Four, worldly wealth is fleeting, heavenly treasure is eternal. Five, giving generously to the poor is a moral duty in a fallen world. Six, giving should be voluntary, generous, even sacrificial, cheerful, and needs-based. And seven, giving generously breaks the power of money over us. So helpful. You know, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul talks about God loving a cheerful giver, right? But, but right, just a few verses right after that, he says this. Listen to this. In verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 9, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So just think about that for a second. We are greatly blessed by God, enriched by God. To what end? For what purpose? What's next? He says, you will be enriched to be generous. That's why you're rich. That's why God has blessed us, to be generous. That shouldn't sound unfamiliar to us. If we've read the early pages of the Old Testament, the patriarchal blessing, Abraham, I will bless you and make you a blessing. You will be blessed to be a blessing. We talked about this in the earlier life of our church family before I was ever here. Talked about being different to make a difference. So enriched to be generous, blessed to be a blessing, different to make a difference. What's this all come down to? It never stops with us. That's what it comes down to. It never stops with us. God's grace never stops with us. It changes us and it comes pouring through us. Our hearts, our hands, our lives, our lips, everything. Grace just comes pouring through us. God forgives us in Christ. And what happens? Ephesians 4.32. We become forgivers. As God in Christ has forgiven you, so forgive one another. So he forgives us in Christ and suddenly I forgive. I'm growing in my ability to forgive. He reconciles us through the cross of Christ. And what do we become? Agents of reconciliation. He gives us abundantly from His grace. And what do we become? Cheerful givers, liberally sowing seeds 
generously giving to the cause of the kingdom, just coming out of our hearts, not as a chore, lavishly, bountifully, smiles on our faces, giving. Just after Paula and I were married, we moved to Longview, Texas, up in northeast Texas. And a little bit down the street from Longview uh, was a university called Laterno University. And they specialize in electronic and uh, tech and engineering. R.G. Laterno was a brilliant mind uh, and inventor of multiple things, just a keen intellect. And he invented, actually, at least at the time, the largest shovel in the world, designed it. And, um, but he was also, in addition to just being very bright and very wealthy, he was passionate for Jesus, loved the church, and loved missions. And they said that he would, he would live off of 10% of his income and give 90% to kingdom causes. And so Laterno University is founded and established. People would often ask him about his giving, and he would frequently refer to, not surprisingly, the metaphor of a shovel. And he would say, God shovels it in, and I shovel it back, but God's shovel is bigger than mine. And that was his way of saying, no matter how much I try to give back to the cause of the kingdom, I always come away fuller. I always come away with the greater gift is mine. Can't outgive God, not just financially, just the blessing, the peace, the joy that comes in giving. Again, that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus, 2,000 years before, had said it's more blessed to give than to get, than to receive, than to buy for ourselves. Jesus had already said that. Came across one writer this week who said, if it's more blessed to give than to receive, then most of us are content to let the other fellow have the greater blessing. Well, that's so true. But really, I think it's down to this. Do we believe what Jesus says? Do we trust the second person of the Trinity when he says, it is, trust me, more blessed to give than to receive? And if we do, we're on our way toward a generosity that's going to change us, that God is going to use to change the world. We're on our way toward a generosity that by God's grace will, just a review of our text, by God's grace, will give us an ability to enjoy God's provision rightly, not abuse God's provision or indulge in it, but to enjoy it. It's going to open our hand to share good things with others, and it's going to do those things so that we're, we're knowing all along the way our security isn't in this stuff, our security doesn't come from our money, so we can hold loosely to our wealth, knowing that our giving is storing up treasure that lasts forever. We know this. This is what our text is informing us as we step toward giving, knowing that while we loosen our grip on our wealth and our riches, we are, Paul's final words in our text, we are actually taking hold of that which is truly life. That's what thriving is all about. That's why this call, this command for us to share is an invitation to joy. <laughs> oh, may God grant us a newfound, joy-filled generosity that we would I've been thinking about it this week and just asking the Lord for this personally. I want to give until it feels like sacrifice, and I want to keep giving until the sacrifice feels like pure joy. I don't want to just give conveniently. I want to give until it feels like I'm opening my hand and letting go of an idol here. I'm sacrificially giving because 
I'm seeking first your kingdom and trusting you provide for all of my needs. But I want to give with that sacrifice, hoping that one day I will more and more sense the absolute joy of giving. I think that's where God wants to get us. That's his agenda for our lives.